everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we ask the important questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall, joined by Jeff Santoro, also known as the voice of the people. Voice, how are you, buddy? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We've got a, got a fun show planned here. It's Valentine's is, is this week. You'll be hearing this. It will be after Valentine's Day. But we've talked a lot about in, in the run of this podcast about like the mentality side of investing and, and managing your portfolio and like managing yourself at the same time. And we thought it would be fun this week, particularly since it's Valentine, to have a little tongue-in-cheek fun, but also talk about a serious challenge for a lot of investors. What are we calling this one? Well, I have to admit, when you pitched a Valentine's-themed podcast, I rolled my eyes a little bit. Um, but actually, this was a good idea. So the, we're doing stocks we hate that we love. So we're going to talk. We're each going to talk about a few stocks that we're going to talk about why we love them, and then we're going to talk about what's gone wrong or what makes us hate the fact that we love them. Which is a, it's a good thought experiment. It's a good way to kind of think differently about the companies you own. And then something related to that for the second half of the show after our possibly fake ad break, um, kind of to wrap things up later on. All right. Well, let's get let's get right to it. Let's get right to it, Jeff. All right, so I'll let you start. We each have a, a bunch here that we're going to, or a few here that we're going to talk through. Um, so talk to us about a, a stock that you're, you have on your list here, but start with why you love it and then why you hate that you love it. Yeah, and this is one of those that I, I don't think anything's necessarily gone wrong. It hasn't really been a great investment, but I don't think anything's necessarily gone wrong. But this is Bank of NT Butterfield and Son. The ticker is NTB. And basically, it's just a bank for rich people, some of whom may or may not be trying to hide money from governments for tax reasons. I would never accuse any bank of intentionally structuring itself as such. But I will say that banks that are located in places like the Cayman Islands and Bermuda and the Channel Islands have a reputation um, of existing for, I don't want to say nefarious reasons, but for reasons that are advantageous to high, very high wealth, highly privileged people. And I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't talk this way a lot on the show, but like I constantly battle with the reality of being a very privileged person and also living in a society where I'm, I'm a diehard capitalist and I want the playing field to be level, right? I want it not, not equal outcomes, but equal opportunities, everybody, you know, you, you put in the work, you have a great product, you build a great business, you have a fair, a fair shake. And let's, let's be honest, dude, the thumbs are on the scale. We know that, right? We, yeah. we know that. And, and, and this is one of those that I love this business because I think it serves an important purpose, right? You might not necessarily agree with it ethically, or maybe you don't give a damn, Right. I, I tend to fall on that don't give a damn a lot of times because I own a bunch of it. And the reason that I own it is it pays a wonderful dividend yield. It's a well-protected dividend. They're very well run. This is one of the oldest banks in, in, um, in Bermuda. They have a great fees-based services business. So that's a diversified portfolio for a business. So it's not just making money. Jeff, we talk about with banks, we just did the Maxfield, uh, John Maxfield show last week, and we talked about banks mostly make money on lending, right? Um, but banks also make money on fees for services that they, that they provide. And one of the things I like about Butterfield is that they have a pretty balanced um, fees-based business on, in addition to their, to their interest um, income that they generate. Yeah, the... This one stock in the sort of the, you know, capitalist versus whatever, you know, recognizing your own privilege, like that constant battle. We talk about that a lot, not as much on the pod, although we have, but a lot personally, like I think if anyone goes through their portfolio, even if they try to be a super, you know, um, an investor that really tries to make their portfolio reflect their best vision of the future, right? To, to quote David Gardner from The Motley Fool, you're going to eventually find a company that 
does something that's a little bit uncomfortable or, you know, someone might qualify, someone might qualify it as a sin stock. Like we've, we have discussed, like, for example, owning tobacco companies. It's a commonly referenced example of that. Do you ignore the health, you know, risks and just take the money that you gain off what has been a great investment? A company that sells an addictive product that kills people. Right. But the (laughs) one side of the coin is, but I'll use that dividend to go do good in the world. Right. Or some people view it as I don't want I don't want anything to do with a company like that. And I think, yeah. you know, if you look deep enough into your portfolio and dig into the companies, you'll find stuff that makes you feel not great. And then you just have to sort of make that decision about, you know, is it not great enough to make you not want to own it, or is it not great enough to sort of say, hey, you know, they're not doing anything illegal. It's just kind of the way the world is. It's hard. I, I struggle with that too. I, I don't own this particular one, but I could see where that would you know, kind of make you see it, think, think of both sides of it. Yeah. And this one, the the stock's down like 39% from the, I guess from its all time high. And this is not a great time for banks. Most bank stocks are down a lot right now. So there's a little bit of kind of the cycle, the cycle side of it, but what's, what's the dividend yield on this thing right now? Let's see, 4%, 4, no, it's more than that. It's like 5%. It's over 5%. That's good. So yeah, I ain't selling. <laughs> Does that make me a bad person? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I, mean, I don't you're either. Just not as good of a person as I am, that's all. Well, Jeff, everybody already knew that. That's nothing. Yeah, that's true. That's nothing new. At least at least in, if we're not considering your infatuation with a certain stock that manufactures a certain large selection of spices. <laughs> What a flawless segue into my stuff. Yeah, that's pretty shitty, wasn't it? Let's we'll edit this part out and we'll say No, we will not. Absolutely. We yeah, only edit out my mistakes. Out. So what I should have said, people, is you know, that's if if we were to not measure, you know, your your high level of confidence in this really crappy company that shouldn't be because they basically have like a a, a controlling they basically control the spice trade in the world right if this was this would be yeah. like the company that owns arrakis right i love this company the spice must flow all right i i'm just gonna move on um so we're talking about mccormick if you they knew that already got, they got yeah, that well i'm just gonna you know we might have some someone who's newer to the investing world may not may not know this company um but if you walk down the grocery aisle in your local grocery store and try to buy salt, pepper, oregano, any of those types of things, you will see McCormick. Um, and you will see it if you buy hot sauce, you will see it if you buy, um, you know, barbecue sauce, things you put on stuff that you grill. I mean, they have uh, French's uh, mustard, like they, they own a ton of consumer flavor based brands, but are mostly known for the spice aisle stuff that you see. And honestly, if you, if you buy store brand, um, spices because they're a little bit cheaper. You might also still be buying McCormick. They've got a big they, private label business, yeah. Right, they do. So I I put this in a bucket where, that I'm calling my consumer bias, right? So these are, I have two two companies. I'll mention the other one in a second. Companies that I, I love them because I'm familiar with them. I understand them. They're products that I use. They're products that I like. And then I feel like that sometimes biases me against a business that maybe isn't doing as well as I, you know, would hope it would. So I recently looked at McCormick after it reported and I kind of put all of the data that I keep track of in my spreadsheet. And if I look at it objectively, meaning I look at the last five years worth of data, it's probably a company I would never be interested in. Um, But then I have to sort of pause and tell myself, but am I just being short-term biased? And is the, you know, a, a majority of the last five years has been pandemic impacted, and they they saw some downsides and some upsides from that. And I still think their business is sort of shaking all that out. Um, so I don't think I'm going to sell it. Um, I don't know that I'm going to add to it much. I'm just sort of going to be try to be really patient with it because I feel like over a decade it, it'll be fine. It'll be a good investment. Um, but it, I want to, I want it to do better because I, I like it so much, and I have this bias against it. Um, so I'm saying the bias out loud. 
assuming that that will then help me get over it. Um, I wouldn't go far as, as so so far as to say it's a shitty business, Jason. I would say no, it's, it's not. Of- it's actually a pretty wonderful business, and they do have some pretty durable moats. I think the thing that's like, and you and I talked about this one a pretty fair amount, right? Mm-hmm. And I've never been. I've never been able to wrap my head around this one. It's like one that I could get really interested in. Despite there being clear reasons that it seems like one that should be, right? Because they should get really good operating leverage because of their economic moats. They have, they should have some really good cost advantages because of their scale as a purchaser, right? They should have decent pricing power because of the brand power of some of the brands that they own, right? And when you have... Commanding market share, cost advantages, and pricing power, you should be able to grow your margins and get really good operating leverage. They haven't. They have not. Right? Yeah. And I think some of that is they had to pivot and make some adjustments during the pandemic because when it first hit, so they have a consumer business and then a basically a food industry facing side of the business that they call flavor solutions. So that's like bulk purchases by food manufacturers and restaurants and stuff that flavoring that goes in chips and stuff like that versus like the stuff you buy at the grocery store. And they saw, you know, during the pandemic, all of the at, you know, away from home stuff crashed and all the consumer stuff went up. And then as things reopened, it sort of went back the other way. And for a while, the consumer stuff was staying at an elevated level. But then in the last couple of quarters, it has started to tail off and they, they said at first it wasn't going to. So I, I, all the, everything you're saying is true. I just don't know that they're, able to see that right now because they've sort of had to get through this tough time. That's why I want to hold and wait and see. The other thing I'll say is like, it's not in my portfolio to be a high growth hyper, you know, you know, this, this stock is not going to turn me into a millionaire. It's, it's going to grow a double in five years kind of stock. No, it's going to grow right. single digits every year. It's going to pay me a okay dividend. It's not going to crash 20%. It's not going to go up 20%, you know, usually. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I don't want to go on too long about it, but it, yeah. it really just kind of sticks out to me as like one that I really like, but it's not been performing the way I want it to. Not just the stock performance, but the actual yeah. business itself. Um, and like I said, it's sort of like my consumer product fan bias that I think is, is you know, making me love it so much, even if it's not rewarding me <laughs> like it should be. Um, the other one, and we don't have to go too far into it just to not eat up all the time on my first two, but the other one that I feel like falls into the same bucket for me is Zoom, um, Zoom Communications, the, the video company that we all know right. from the pandemic, right. and it's also a consumer bias thing because I've used all of the all of the ones that are out there. It feels like I've used Cisco and Google Meet and Teams, and I hate all of them except Zoom. I really, really, really like Zoom. I think it's a far superior product. Yeah, but someone said something the other day which really resonated with me. Prior to the pandemic, it was never meant to be primarily a consumer facing product. Never was, right. That was never their goal. Mm-mm. I had used it prior to the pandemic for like meetings with like non nonprofits that I was involved in and stuff. Like, right. But that wasn't Professional their, use, not, not... Yeah, but still, it was like, you know, six people in a free uh, version, yeah. right? It wasn't, a, you know... Um, but they were always going to be um, business-to-business enterprise-facing. And then it was the pandemic that sort of put it on everyone's radar. Um, and I cannot bring myself to sell it and I cannot bring myself to add to it, even though they're putting up really strong numbers each quarter, you know, and I can see the long-term vision and, but now that it, their business is focused on an area I can't see cause I'm not an, I don't work in an enterprise that uses it. It's really hard for me to gauge like how much growth there could be or how much of a addressable market there is that remains. Um, so that's another one where like, my bias because I know it and I really like it is keeping me from both adding to it and also from selling it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it doesn't. This one, this one didn't make the um, stocks we hate that we love for me because I've grown, I don't want to say apathetic, but um, I, I've certainly lost a certain amount of conviction with this one for a lot of the reasons you you, you say. And the other thing too it's like I've moved beyond like that that consumer bias. So the fact that it is full stop, it is the superior product, right? And what I've as I've studied Microsoft more and looked at what Microsoft has built, 
Yeah, Microsoft. And I did another video talking about artificial intelligence. I encourage people to go to our YouTube channel and check it out. Um, Microsoft rarely has the best anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, but they have everything. Yeah. And the, it's the at least good enough. The best correlation I can, or, or best example of that to me is like Outlook. Yeah. Like I used Outlook for many years at work and we finally switched over to using Gmail. And I hate Outlook. I hate everything about it. I, I know some people are fans, but it's, it's okay. And, but it's the, but everyone has it. It's on your computer. It comes with your PC. Like, and, and I feel like once Microsoft recognized the threat from zoom, they, they poured a ton of resources into teams because they have the money. Right. And now it's like, I feel like that's my other reason for like hesitating with zoom. I feel like, yeah, they're, they're making this big enterprise push, but you know what all those enterprises already probably have on all their computers teams. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And if you're already paying for Microsoft stuff and you have teams included and it's okay, it gets the job done, even if it's not the best and you're trying to cut costs because times are tight, why would you go pay for zoom? Right. Well, and the other part of it too, is that if you're, if you're an enterprise and you're running their, you know, their, their information services, it, whatever you, your company calls it, if you're dealing with all of that, that, infrastructure and technology, the old adage about having one back to pat, one throat to choke is really valuable because you're managing your resources tightly and you don't want to have 30 vendors to have to call. Right. And that's, that's a big, that's a big selling point um, for, for the buyers of these sorts of things. And that's one of the things that we've seen that's changed Jeff Um, over the past year, year and a half, Companies have gone back to their normal buying patterns. They're sending out RFPs, they're testing products, they're comparing bids, and they're going through a full normal sales cycle. They're not just signing up for the thing that they can get. Yeah. And and I'm and what I'm <clears throat> what we're really going to learn is can Zoom really be a standalone enterprise communication suite, and that be enough to be a business that can compete with the, the giants like Microsoft. Well, yeah. And that's what they're trying to do, right? They're, yeah. they're realizing exactly what you just said and they realize they can't just be the video communication tool for these companies. That's why they started zoom phone and they have these zoom rooms and they're trying to build out the little slack like feature that is already in the, the zoom application. And I think they're trying to pitch to companies like, here's the superior video product and here's all this other stuff that we can do. Like we can replace all your phones and with, you know, all your old Cisco phones, you can buy zoom phones, you know? So you're, to your point, they're trying to be that one, that one back to Pat, <laughs> but they have, they're starting from the standpoint of like the video software and trying to branch out. And it, if, if it works and they can do that, you know, then maybe they, maybe it's successful. So, all right, let's, I'll stop. Can I, talk, let's, can I talk about, can I talk about Coinbase? Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna segue to that. You ruined it for me, but go ahead. It's fine. Well, I'm. I am the ruiner of segways. That's what I'm. I've I'm the voice of the people, and you're the ruiner of segways. This is good. We got to trademark that, Jeff. All right. So, why do I hate that I love Coinbase? And the reality is that I'm probably going to be wrong about the blockchain. I'm not somebody that that believes that we're all going to be paying for things in crypto bucks in five years, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or Solana or Polkadot or Ethereum, any of those, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen because what's going to have to happen for the stuff that's built on blockchain to thrive is it's got to be really easy for people like me and Jeff and those of you listening to, to use for the blockchain, it's got to benefit us in some way and be easy and friction-free in our real lives. I don't care how much the gas station or the, 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 the restaurant pays in fees. It's really easy for me to whip out my phone and do Apple Pay on my Costco Visa, and it's done and it happens. And I don't have to do some stupid math in my head to figure out how many whatever coins I just paid when the money was supposed to be in dollars, I don't, all that stuff has to go away, Jeff. Right. 
Yeah. And I'm just not... I'm not sure how things are going to continue to play out with blockchain becoming a thing that can be used for these large-scale transactional things and tracking things and making things happen automatically and quickly and driving out costs and in increasing s security profiles and all the things that, it, that blockchain on paper can clearly do. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that I come back to. You know, people talk about this is going to be the biggest innovation since the Internet. Right? And it feels like things happen really fast with the Internet. The Internet was invented in 1983. It was decades, decades. You know, the dot-com boom happened 17 years after the Internet was born. The dot-com bust happened 17 years after the Internet was born, right? So 17 years later, and like the economic benefits of the Internet that we were expecting still were not happening. And it was another four or five years before e-commerce really started to get traction. People were going from, instead of going to stores to look at products, they were looking at them on their computers, and then they might go to a store um, to buy it, right? So it, took, it takes a long time. And what the thing with the Internet, obviously, was back in 83, you know, a lot of people, most people still had rotary phones in their houses, right? So yeah. just the baseline technology to even use the internet didn't exist. And I think a lot of that's still going on with blockchain, right? The, the, techno the supporting technology doesn't even fully exist yet. Um, so that's the thing that I keep coming back to and trying to be patient. Well, and, and the hard thing is too, like you could make the case that Coinbase, if you hold it for let's say 17 years, right? Just to use the time frame you just referenced. Right. Could end up being like the go-to biggest player in that space, or right. it could end up being AOL. Right. Right. Which and which was that, you know, when when Which was when, both. When, which was both. Which was both. Exactly. Yeah. It was yeah. that company and then it quickly wasn't. <laughs> right. So that's the you key. know that and that's why I think like just this is sort of off topic, but like just thinking about like position sizing and like what you buy and how much you spend on it. Like if you think blockchain will be a thing, or even if you think cryptocurrency exchange will be like you don't, but some people do, you can make the case that have a reasonable allocation to something like Coinbase and then let it sit for the next 10 years or 15 years. You know, I mean, don't ignore it in case something goes horribly bad with it, but um you know, there's something to be said for making properly sized sort of bets on the future. And, you know, you can make the case that Coinbase is, is the best positioned company right now to benefit from when and if blockchain really does become the thing it could be. Yeah, I want to just say one thing about it, too, before we move on to your couple that you want to talk about here. And that's like my thesis isn't being the the the, the brokerage for cryptocurrencies. That's not my thesis for Coinbase. Sure, that will probably be part of the business because the tokens are the are the assets that are the economic means of exchange for using the various blockchains for different things once we figure out those things, right? But I think the bigger thing is going to be the development, like the 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 stuff for developers that they're building, the cloud-based right. stuff that could be just a game changer and a hugely profitable business and far more important to turning blockchain into something that people actually get some sort of tangible benefit out of. It drives down costs, helps things happen faster, helps entrepreneurs, business owners make more money instead of giving it to the, the toll booth operators, right? So all of those things. So that's to me, that's the thesis. Is It's not making $5 or $10 for people trading Bitcoin. Yeah, and it could be that the crypto crazy time in which Coinbase came onto the markets and you know had an IPO or, or I forget if they went IPO or SPAC, but came to the IPO. markets and maybe that was the seed money they needed to be able to be what your thesis is expecting them to be down the road. You know, like maybe that was the catalyst they needed to sort of spark that. So Coinbase has five point almost five point four billion dollars in cash. On its balance sheet. Yeah, it's incredible. They're doing fine in that, in that regard. They okay. They okay. So they're making lemonade out of... Wow. See what I did there? That's, 
that the I, destro- I don't know what the destroyer of segways strikes again. <laughs> no, actually, that one that one could have been okay if you hadn't called it out. All right, so I have two more in like a different bucket that I think of, which is the um, companies I love because of what they do, um, the way they're trying to disrupt their respective industries, and then I hate that I love them because I'm not sure it will work. Love Um, the story, not the stock. Yet. Yeah. Love the story, not the stock yet. Right. I'm I'm still going to be hopeful. Um, I am not going to sell either of these either, but we've talked about these a lot on the show. So I'm not going to, I don't think we need to go into a deep, deep dive here, but the two that I'm thinking of are, are lemonade and upstart Um, lemonade because I like the way that they are um, disrupting what is a, an industry begging to be disrupted, which is insurance, um, in terms of, you know, getting it easily, changing the incentive structure, um, catering to a younger generation that is probably, you know, really turned off by trying to get insurance otherwise. Um, and then same, same kind of thing with upstart, right. Helping people who, who otherwise might get bad credit or, or denied a loan because of their credit, helping them, you know, prove in other, helping prove in other ways that these, these people who need credit can actually get the loan that they need. Right. Um, I love what they're doing at rates that are reasonable and not use reasonable rates. Right. So they're not doing, you know, a crazy payday loan type stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I hope both of these companies are super successful. I think they're doing good in the world. Um, but both have have to still prove that they can underwrite insurance policies or, or that their business can actually do what they say it's going to do. Right. Um, so again, it's the same kind of thing for me. Like I'm not going to sell them at least not yet, but every quarter comes and I, I look for, I look in the, in the results trying to see, have they turned a corner? Are they showing that they are making progress? And sometimes the answer is no. And then it's like, all right, another three months (laughs) to wait to see if they can turn the corner. Um, and you know, like we've talked about these a lot. I know you own both, and I think you have some of the sh- same concerns slash hopes for both of these. Yeah, lemonade. I, I fell in love early and and made the mistake. And I made the mistake while I knew I was making it that they hadn't proved that they could originate. Right? If you're an insurer, you have to be a good originator. And they haven't they haven't proven that yet. And upstart, I was far more disciplined and have started a small position. Their challenge is they don't control their destiny. Lemonade, they they go find customers, right? They right. they they've built a great website and people come to them. Upstart has to have bank lending partners, right? That originate the loans or that will take the loans off of um, Upstart's balance sheet. So it doesn't control its destiny. And right now, banks are all of its all of its bank partners are like, yeah, we're just gonna not originate a bunch of unsecured consumer loans right now because there might be a recession. So, I mean, that's like turning the faucet off and upstarts, you know, no water's coming in. So balance sheet's good. The business is not at threat, but I mean, it's weird because like the thing that's hurting it in the short term is the thing that could be a huge benefit in the long term. Because if we actually do go through a recession and all those loans that were originated on its platform over the past few years, perform to expectation dude the banks are going to that it worked yeah yeah Yeah. exactly yeah and if i remember correctly the last quarter that they reported um they were still picking up like bank cost you know um bank um partnerships and they are they're just they're the the, everybody that had been partnered with them is like hit pause right well that's why i want to see this quarter like i want to see if if we really start to see the impact of that right um, yeah. So why don't you tell me about your next stock? Voice of the people, executor of segways. Nice job. <laughs> See, I murdered them and you just execute them. So tell T E L L Tellurian, a little bit of the same thing with lemonade and upstart. It's kind of my penchant for falling in love with the great story. So Tellurian's business the thesis when I bought it was, and still is a big part of the thesis, is building um, a natural gas export facility in the U.S. Gulf Coast, liquefying natural gas. Um, so we have tons of natural gas in North America that's low cost. 
And there are massive markets that want um, that, that natural gas to either offset coal or simply they need the energy. Think about everything that's happened in Europe since Russia invaded Ukraine, right? Here's the thing. They need to raise billions and billions of dollars to build this facility. It's like the project is ready to go. They've got all the regulatory stuff's done. They've got a contractor lined up to build it. Like all they got to do is sign on the dotted line on the final investment decision to do it, and they could break around and start building this thing. They just don't have any money. And it is mind-numbing that in like the, you would think like the best capital environment with tailwinds for something like this, with all of these markets that are looking for natural gas, oil prices very high, oil, oil and gas companies very profitable. That's like where a lot of the money would come from is there these oil and gas companies partnering with them. They, they haven't been able to get it done, right? And, and to such a point that Sharif Suki, who's the co-founder of the business, he does these little YouTube videos, um, and he's the chairman of the board. He's not the, they have different people that are doing day-to-day operations. But Suki also founded Chenier Energy, which is like the LNG export, huge winner, life-changing stock in this industry. Like he built that business, um, and he's done this before, right? So trying to do it again, and it just, it, it, it blows my mind they didn't pull it off. So they've pivoted and started acquiring natural gas production assets. And now they're trying to be a natural gas producer. Um, so they've moved the goalposts. They've changed the business. The thesis is different. And I'm dealing with that part of myself where I'm just glacial, Jeff, when it comes to selling. And I'm, I'm just wondering if I'm, Am I going to be prescient? Am I going to look like one of those people that held through Chenier or bought when things looked really dire? Five years, I'm going to be looking back, and it's a ten bagger, right? It's possible. Yeah. It's this the stock. I think the stock could forty x or fifty x from here if things would just kind of turn a little bit. But because they haven't through the environment that we've gone through, I just I hate myself for loving this one. Yeah. And that I, what you just said there at the end really resonates with me because anyone who's ever told one of those awesome stories about the hundred bagger that they have in their portfolio comes along with the oh and I held it through X or or I didn't sell when they did Y um, and every heartbreaking story of I sold X and it's been a hundred bagger since is usually and I sold it when this bad, you know, it was going through this tough time, you know, like the Netflix and uh, the Quickster debacle is like a good example of that. People held through it and they have this awesome story to tell people bailed and they look at their portfolio and cry over the gains they, they left on the table. Um, so yeah, I get it. It's, you know, the story will sometimes, if, if you love the story enough, maybe it's the thing that does help you hold through, but you know, you also have the opportunity loss of that money that either, sat around, did nothing or, or, you know, depreciated that you could have been using for something else if you end up being wrong. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. That's it. So this is one that I think is good because this is, it's another one that it's like you, it's kind of the same thing. It's one you know, really, really, really well. Right. Yeah. So I'm calling this my research bias stock. So it's fulgent genetics. Um, when I started to do contracting work for the Motley Fool, my, first job was to be what's called a ticker guide, which is essentially be on the community discussion boards and keep conversation going and answer questions and things like that. And one of the first companies I was assigned was Fulgent. So I've known it for, you know, basically since I first got into being an individual stock investor, this has been like the first company I really sort of dove into. The best possible time to start getting to know Fulgent genetics. Yeah, exactly. Right. As they started to make billions of dollars selling COVID tests. Right. A million um, dollar investment and they printed billions in cash flow. Right. But the, the thing that was always what I looked for and the reason I bought it ultimately way back when I first learned about it was behind all the fulgent revenue was this core business. They do genetic testing and they have this next sequencing, next generation sequencing genetic test. And that underneath all the COVID revenue was growing triple digits all through the pandemic, right? So you could look at the pandemic stuff and say, okay, I get it. That's not going to be here forever. God willing, we're not going to be testing for COVID down the road. 
but here's this core business underneath that's still chugging along. And they made some really smart acquisitions initially using all that pandemic testing money. They 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 bought a couple comp- they bought a company, they also signed an agreement that branched out, branched their business out into the cancer space. They got a footprint in China. So I was really sort of enamored with this business. Like here they are, they're crushing it. They made a quick pivot to testing for COVID that got them billions of dollars. They're they're allocating that capital smartly. And then the last couple months, I've really sort of seen some th- some red flags. Um, there was some information in the last SEC filing. There's a section in all SEC filings about um, uh, what's it called? Party risk. Um, can't think of the term. Related party risk. Yeah, related party risk. Related party risk. Thank you. Yeah. That. Yeah. And maybe it was there previously, and I just didn't catch it because I didn't. I don't read every word of the 10Q or the 10K. Yeah. No, some of it was already essentially because some. Ming Shei, the co-founder and CEO, majority owner, right? Right. Well, what what put it on my radar was listening to some smarter people than I talk about it. But it was after they made the acquisition they announced a couple months ago of Fulgent Farm Pharmaceuticals, which was actually part of the business prior to their IPO, and they split it off for the IPO. But it's also owned by the CEO of Fulgent Genetics, right? So my my initial thought was. Is the best use of capital to acquire a company that would benefit the CEO? And then I come to find out not only did that happen, but didn't Elon Musk do that travel. with a solar company? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. Didn't the the founder of Seedrill do that with like a bunch of different little things that he owned? Yeah. Right, and that's yeah. This is my point, right? It could be that that was the right move. Who knows? Like maybe th- that company, that gen- uh, the pharmaceutical company, goes and does great things. But it raised my eyebrow, right? It made me think twice about it. And then you know, there's all these, there's other things that were in there, like they booked travel with a company owned by the CEO. They bought furniture from a company owned by the CEO's wife. Like just all these weird, you know, they they have to disclose it, so it's there. It's not like they're hiding it, but it still kind of makes me think, like, is this? You know, are they really doing what's best for, best for shareholders or are they doing what's best for themselves and their family? So um, of all the ones we're talking about, that's the one that I'm probably closest to considering selling. But again, when you know a company really, really well and you've sort of invested that time and there's still potential it could do well, it's not like the thesis is busted necessarily, although the pharmaceutical acquisition does make me question it. Um, so yeah, that's my final one. Uh, Fulgent genetics. It's just that I've spent so much time with it. It's sort of hard to be an objective observer of what's going on. I always say that out loud that I'm the kind of person that doesn't want to own companies with these kind of red flags. And then here I am owning a company with these kind of red flags. Yeah. Well, it's the, there's a little bit of the sunk cost fallacy that I think kind of comes into play here. Cause like you said, you, you invest all of this time into understanding a company, getting to know it really well. And you get to the point that you decide to buy it and you add it to your portfolio and selling feels like throwing all of that time and effort away. And yeah. I think this is a really good lesson of, I, I don't necessarily know that it informs that you should have done anything differently up to this point, Jeff. Because we, and we won't know the answer to that for five more years, right? If we're honest with ourselves. Right. Until we find out how the economic results of the pharma business pan out, whether they generate any returns for investors, they take away from capital that, I think they've been really diligent about investing. Like you said, they've made a ton of really good bolt-on acquisitions to expand that testing business in some really smart ways. Um, but I think the, the, the objective lesson about using the time and energy and effort you put into researching a company isn't just to keep it tucked in your portfolio and holding that company. It's also using it to make the decision when you need to exit the investment, when you start seeing those yellow flags that maybe turn into red flags and acting on that information and not ignoring everything that you've built in terms of that res- that resource of your knowledge, right? Yeah. So that's, that's my takeaway. Yeah. Well, in another flawless segue, let's not talk too much more about it because in the B block, after we do our little fake, potentially fake ad here, um, we're going to come back and talk about two of the companies that we just talked through, and we're going to try to convince each other to either sell or not sell. So uh, we're going to have some coffee. 
you may or may not hear an advertisement, but either way, stick around. We're going to wrap things up in a little bit with uh, some talk about whether or not we should sell some, some stocks. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. All right, everybody, welcome back. And as Jeff mentioned there right before the ad break, and if it was a real ad break, we absolutely love that product. It's phenomenal. If there wasn't an ad there, well, joke's on you now, isn't it? That's right. Jeff, what's, uh, what have I, I got to change your mind about something here. We're playing yeah, change so my let, mind. Let's, let's continue. We'll do mine first because we were just talking about it before that fantastic ad. Um, I really am highly considering selling Fulgent. And you sort of tipped your hand a little bit, I think, saying what you said right before, but Here's my thinking. So if I'm going to be fully transparent about my investing process, the way I think about things, if I sell Fulgent Genetics because of the red flags that I referenced earlier in the show, it would be the first time I'm really selling a company because there's like serious concerns I have with the business. Usually if I sell a company, it's, I, it's just completely busted. Like I don't think there's any future. I don't think that's the case here. I think Fulgent Genetics could still be a very good investment for a very long time. Or I sell it because I've just lost interest in the company. I don't care about it. I don't want to own it anymore. Or it was such a tiny position and I just, I'm indifferent. So I've had all these other reasons for selling. Um, right. Loss of conviction or loss yeah. of faith. in the Right, right. But this would be the first time I'd really be like facing like what I think could be a management team not doing what's best for its shareholders and just sort of looking out for itself. Um, and I, I have to be honest, if it were way down in my portfolio, or if I thought that it were, I mean, in terms of losses, or if I thought that there really was no chance for it to come back, I would have sold it probably in November when we, when we both did all that selling. Um, but I hang on to it because of the time I put into it, but also I think it still has potential. And also it hasn't been the world's worst investment for me. It's not up like but so is a lot of things in my so are a lot of things in my portfolio. So, with all that as as a as a preface, what are you what are you thinking? So, as as per usual, the first this is the first question I always ask you when you're what are you going to do with the money? <laughs> what are you going to do with the money? Let's say you sell Fulgent Genetics. Yeah. What are you What are you going to do? So I don't have a I don't have anything on my watch list that I'm dying to buy. And I am also still on my quest to own less companies. So I will, I would probably sell it and then just keep the cash in my account and sort of lump it in with my weekly normal buying the things in my portfolio that I have the highest conviction in that are at better valuations, like my whole process that I do each week. Right. I would probably just sort of roll it into that. So to answer your question more directly, I would theoretically be putting it into a company that as, as of right now, I have higher conviction in. So this is, this, I think this is actually a really good one because I've been, I've gone through the same process of thought with, with, uh, with, um, Fulgent in my own, in my own portfolio. And what I keep coming back to is, again, we're looking at this one transaction is it's kind of the catalyst. Sure, there's those related party dealings with uh, the, the, with Ming Shea's travel company he owns. I guess he owns a, a, a private jet or something. And then his wife's furniture business or whatever. Um, and those are there, right? But, and, and they happen with other, with other smaller companies too. Yep. But then I look at all of those other acquisitions that they've made and it just strikes me as a management team that seems really, and I shouldn't even say the management team because I think it really comes down to Ming Che because again, he's the controlling shareholder too. He's the chairman of the board. 
he's yeah and the board is like three people including him i think (laughs) yeah yeah so so to me i would say like the way i would think about it the way i would ask you to think about it is are you overweighting this one transaction and denying the prior body of evidence of pretty smart capital allocation with and 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 then also preface that with do you think this is it is it just the acquisition or do you think this is a symptom because something you and else something else you and I've talked about with the company is it seems like there is a v- significant lack of independence with the board right right um and sometimes we like as who's, investors who's, who's the checks and ba- where's the checks and balances with the CEO it's you know what i mean there's like no it sounds like there's no contrary contrarian ideas it's all yes men right. yes men yes women right right uh, very much a lack of independence right so and and my question is is it just concern do you think this is a sign of greater problems to come or do you take issue with the opacity and the lack of independence and you're no longer willing to trust him with your capital of all the things of all the things we've talked through honestly the thing that bugs me the most is the acquisition of fulgent pharmaceuticals because but then here's like the counter to that too i i I said that i really liked some of their previous acquisitions they seem to make sense but i don't know right now sitting here that they were great acquisitions because i don't know the industry as well as others do Mm -hmm. and those all these acquisitions take time, you know, and they don't necessarily break out like, oh, here was our organic organic revenue, and here's right. the revenue we got from um, our acquisition of this company, right? So it, it, I always feel like the burden of proof is on the company doing the acquiring to prove that it was the right thing to do, but like the the acquisition of a company that it's in a completely different part of the pharmaceutical or the healthcare space, right? Like right. Then this is a company that's also hard enough to, to value as it is, right? Because of yeah. the genetic testing, the phone, the, the, the COVID testing business being in sharp decline and that being the prior cash cow. And if, and if the, the genetic testing business, if they're looking at it as that's going to be the cash cow, right? If that's going to be what's going to generate the, the revenue that can help, a pharmaceutical company, which is going to develop, spend a lot of money developing drugs that never come to the market, then that's just a completely different business now. Exactly. Um, exactly. And that's what, and, and again, and then all of that being said, it's a company that benefits him by having it be acquired. <laughs> so, yeah. And then here's the thing about it, right? It's not even, and this is the last thing I'll say, and then I want you to kind of weigh in on where you, where you think you're leaning right now. I would not fault anybody for selling this company right now based on everything that's happened. There's a lot of reasons that it would make sense to, to not own Fulgent Genetics. Everything that you said included. And to me, the thing with Fulgent Pharma is not even the price that it paid. And I've, I haven't even looked in their SEC filings to, to see if that specific number is even shown or if it's been kept confidential from what I've what I recall, they haven't actually reported that and they don't necessarily have to. I don't remember but, seeing it, no. And it, but it's not even necessarily how much it paid for it. It's how much it's going to pay to continue operating it, right? right? The cash that it's going to have to divert from other things that it could use that is now going to be diverted to a non, essentially non-revenue-generating pharmaceutical business that doesn't have an FDA-approved drug. Yeah, so... To wrap up our effulgent discussion, I think here's where I am right now. I'm inclined to well, they're going to re- they're going to report earnings in a couple of weeks, so I don't think I'll do anything between now and the next earning re- earnings report because at this point it feels like I should just see if they have anything more to say about it a quarter later. Um, I I might make a decision after that, but part of me there's part of me that also says like I could just kind of let it sit and ignore it and not add to it, not give it any more thought and let, let more quarters pass by and see if there's any proof in the, in the business of, of it deteriorating. You know, if they start burning cash in the next two or three quarters, or if they start seeing, you know, are on top of that revenue slows, right? So like that, that theoretical cash cow that can fund the pharmaceutical business is no longer there. Like 
I, I'm in no rush to sell, I guess is the way I could, I would, I would put it. Um, yeah. I think that's where I am right now, but I don't know. I think about it a lot. I think you're thinking about it the right way. So long as you're not thinking about it too much, right? Because there's, yeah, a cost no, no, there it's too. not like keeping me up at night or anything like that. But when I do, when I do take the time to go through my portfolio and think about potential changes, like it, it's top of mind. So, all right, let's, let's pivot here. Um, what's your stock that you're close to or considering selling that you want, you want to talk, talk out loud about? Well, I, I think, I think I need to have a conversation with somebody about Silurian. So what would, if you sold it, what would you do with the money? Um, I'd buy cash. You would just keep it in cash. I'm, I'm in a position right now where I'm trying to build cash. There's only a few stocks that I'm particularly compelled to buy right now. Yeah. Um, and a couple of them, I have some concerns about the near term with their business and I need to get past that. Probably start an opening position like, uh, Silicon Valley SVB financial, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's going to be great, but I, over the long term, but I just, I really need to make sure I'm not ignoring any like systemic risk with everything that's going on with venture capital and like how they've built their, their lending business over the past three or four years before I pull the trigger there. But so all of that to say, I'd, I'd buy cash, right? Some optionality that I would look to deploy well, over the next six months. So here's the question I would ask you that I think is different than you would ask me because our portfolios in terms of the proportion that our individual stocks is very different, right? Like I've talked before mm-hmm. about how if you add all my individual stocks together, I think it's still less than 10% of my, you know, my wife and I's combined investment portfolio. So I have significantly less risk in even my largest position. Right. Um, so where does Tellurian rank in terms of it's middle middle of the pack. I, I don't. I've never had su- substantial exposure to it. Um, and I I bought some shares at like a a, a, do- a dollar back in twenty twenty when everything was crashing. Yeah. Um. So I've made money um, on at least part of my my holdings here. But what I what I keep coming back to with this Jeff is thinking about again Sharif Suki's not. A manager of the business. He's on the board. Pretty sure he's the chairman. But he's very important to its its success. And Shanir uh, Energy started off when he it was a, when, as a startup when he founded it to import natural gas. So it was so long ago that there was this. The general idea was that the natural gas that was in North America was too expensive to access all the stuff in Mm -hmm. shale. We'd never be able to get it out. We were going to have to start importing it. And then something happened, um, along the way and fracking happened and it was really mainly for oil and they figured out, Oh, we can get a lot of natural gas this way cheaply. Yeah. Changed everything. Changed, absolutely changed everything. Right. So, um, I think this is somebody that has a tremendous amount of mental flexibility, but, and the th- I think the the thesis is fine, with that caveat that they've changed it a little bit. Um, but I'm just I'm I'm wondering if I'm so biased because of another past success that that I'm I'm seeing an opportunity that's just clearly never going to pan out. So I know you don't keep detailed super nerdy spreadsheets like I do, but. One of the things that we, we talked earlier about McCormick and one of the things that I noticed this, this quarter when they re- put results out was as I looked through just the numbers, right? Ignore the story, pretend it's a blank spreadsheet without a name, show me these results. It's not a company I would buy, right? And that's not how you should make all of your investing decisions because it is just a snapshot and it was only five years and that in the history of a company that's been around for a really long time, that can actually just be a blip on the radar, Um but are there any metrics that you've seen with Tellurian the last quarter, the last couple quarters that makes you feel like you'd be wise to hold on or makes you feel like you'd be wise to sell if you could separate them from the story and what you know about it? See, I, I think this is a healthy exercise because it kind of forces you to try to find some objectivity with these ones that you get really, really close to. The tr- here's the problem with Tellurian with that is that they're, they're, they're basic 
business, the big the big thing is still theoretical. It's plans sitting on a hard drive in a computer somewhere. It's some land they have a long term lease on, but it's not like I can look at their cash flows last year versus last quarter versus you know. There's, so there's no cadence of that. It's all about the key man and getting the industry players to come to the table and agree to help fund it, right? Or to somehow raise capital. And that's why this one's so difficult is it's, there's not, you, you, you have to, I mean, you, you have to go on, you know, you just, this is one that there has to be a certain amount of just kind of going on faith that they're going to get it done. Yeah. It, it's the very different, well, maybe not as very different. It reminds me, as you said that last part, it reminds me a lot of QuantumScape, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. where oh, very you're putting so. your hope in in a technology that's not proven to be able to be rolled out at scale yet. Right. But if it could, holy cow. <laughs> right. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. Maybe it's not exact an exact analogy, but that's what it made me think of. Well, it is, and the, the thing with QuantumScape is, well, they just they just they've sent sample cells. Um, to their automaker partners. Um, so they're, that's, that's a clear signal, right? That things right. are, that's something you can actually look at and say they're making progress. Right. Right. So that, that hasn't happened with Tellurian. All right. Last question on Tellurian. And then you can tell me where, where you're leaning. If you did sell right now, is the, do you feel confident that, a year from now or two years from now, if the story gets a little clearer and your, your conviction comes back, do you feel like it's early enough? Are they small enough of a company where you could get back in and still see appreciable gains? Cause that's something to consider too. Yeah. Like QuantumScape, another example, like you don't need to own QuantumScape right now. If that technology pans out as soon as we know it will, it does, you'll have plenty of time to, to get in and, and ride that for the next several decades. Yeah, obviously, like I don't, we, we don't, you never know what's what's going to happen with the stock, and the market can do some pretty silly things in a very short period of time. Yeah, yeah. But all of all th- taking all of that into account, I, I think so. I think this is this isn't the business that I'm that I bought specifically to sell the day they announced their FID, right? That they were doing it, and there's going to be a big pop, and then I'm going to sell, and I'm going to take those profits and go. I think this is a stock that could generate realistically from here 50 fold returns over the five year first five years from the day they issue that fid to the first phases built and then phases of expansion after that i think this could be an enormous enormous winner right i I really do so i mean maybe that's the right maybe that's the decisions maybe it's maybe it's time just to move to the sidelines and the answer is not i sell and it's no forever it's just not right now yeah all right, so where so where are you leaning? If you had to decide right now, not doing anything. Yeah, you know, kind of your your fulgent one, kind of the same thing. You know, I don't feel like I have to be in a rush to do anything. Um, well, I feel, well, I feel like there's a little bit of like arbitrarily assigning the need to make a permanent decision. You know, right. and I think maybe that's the mistake that I've been making. So I think that last question that you asked me before this one. Um, Maybe that's the one that's going to give me the best clarity. Well, I think the big takeaway from this, I think, I hope people found this conversation interesting. I, I did, but like, I hope they did too. But I, to me, it's like you, you need to have a, a place or someone to sort of talk about it out loud because you, you'll ask yourself the same questions over and over again. And sometimes in pitching it to someone else or or just mentioning it, you'll get a different question or a different way of thinking about it. I mean, you and I have a lot of fun like informal text conversations where we will give each other like hot take reactions that we don't expect the other person to take (laughs) seriously Mm -hmm. but to have like a long nuanced conversation about it i think can be helpful and give some clarity and then i think the other kind of big important takeaway too is like whatever decision either of us end up making or not making um and same for anyone who's listening uh whether you write it down or not, I know a lot of people are, are fans of like journaling their decisions, but it's, it's all a learning process, right? You're, you, we're both going to end up learning something from the decision to sell or not sell. We just won't learn it until down the road when we find out we were really right or really wrong. Um, 
But all those little decisions built on top of each other make us all better investors. Jeff, we did it, buddy. Once again. We did. This was fun. This was fun. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna change things up at the end too. All right, bring it. We uh you know, we we do love to talk about these these hard questions. I think so many people out there are looking for people to tell them what to do. Jeff and I are not here to tell you what to do. Nope. We are here to help you figure out how to think. We can't give you the answers to these questions, but you can find your own answers. I believe in you. See you next time, Jeff. See you next time.